join me in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes 11, we will look this morning at verses 1 through 6. The title of the sermon this morning is, How Do You Know? Our key words for our worshipers in training are sow, prosper, and reap. We begin by telling you the story of William Carey for a few moments. In England in 1792, William Carey conducted an inquiry into the missions uh, enterprise throughout the world. Resulted in a, a book that he wrote which appeals to the Christians in the church for the missionary task. It's called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. It's a very classic work and it's still used today. This was Carey's attempt to provide the rationale for missions. Uh, for world evangelization, and at convincing the church that Christian missions is not an option, but rather a duty. Now, soon after the publication of this book, Carey preached at an associational meeting at Nottingham, uh, pressing uh, in even more on the themes of taking the gospel to the nations. There were two main points of William Carey's sermon. One, expect great things. Two, Attempt great things. Now, very few sermons in the history of the church since the apostles have been cited so often. In fact, it was just on our board out here for ECS for a few weeks. By the close of the associational meeting, the very next day, the association voted as a result of William Carey's preaching to establish a foreign missions organization, which for them meant serious financial sacrifices for them individually and for the congregations. They were a people of very meager means. This missionary society was later named the Particular Baptist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. Later, simply, it was called the Baptist Missionary Society. The first appointment to this society was the Baptist churchman and medical doctor John Thomas, who had previously gone to India with the Royal Navy, and he stayed there as an evangelist. He desired to return to India as a missionary. William Carey also volunteered himself to the society as a missionary companion with John Thomas. He was immediately accepted to the task. Now, at this time, William Carey was 32 years old. He was married. He had three young sons, all under the age of nine, and his wife was pregnant and nearly illiterate. She did not want to leave her family, her neighbors, or the local church to go to some unknown land. So at first, Dorothy Carey declined to join her husband in India, and instead they agreed that William Carey would go with their oldest son, Felix, and join Dr. Thomas with his wife and child. But the voyage was delayed because of difficulties in their transportation, And during the delay, Dorothy delivered Jabez, their fourth son, and was persuaded to join the expedition. 
Five months later, after a very difficult trip with numerous heavy storms and physical misery, the Carey and Thomas families entered India illegally on November 11, 1793. Well, asked about William Carey and his credentials as they landed, church historian Timothy George said, education, minimal. Degrees, none. Savings, depleted. Political influence, nil. References, a band of country preachers half a world away. And what were his resources? A weapon, love. A desire to bring the light of God into the darkness. A strategy to proclaim by life, lips, and letters the unsearchable riches of Christ. And this was the beginning of 40 years of ministry in India. The early years in India were incredibly difficult. Initial funds quickly depleted. Communication with supporting churches was uh, very sparse. Cultural adjustment was very difficult and dysentery and various fevers afflicted the Carey family quite often. In 1794, Peter Carey, who was the five-year-old son of the Careys, contracted a fever and died. Now, Peter's death permanently broke Dorothy Carey spiritually, and she never recovered. She spent the remainder of her days ranting and raving at her husband, William, often who was in the very next room as he worked to translate the Bible into Bengali. With a body wrought with pain and growing increasingly psychotic in her behavior, Dorothy lived with various delusions until she died 13 years later at the age of 51. In the midst of all of this, it took William Carey six years before he saw his first convert to Christ. And he did not receive any reinforcements from England until the 1800s. But by 1805, several Indian converts had established local churches with elders and deacons. By 1818, a network of 22 schools with more than 10,000 students were established along with a college. And through Carey's effort, a pattern for Western missionary efforts was established that remains almost entirely unchanged to this very day. And when Carey died in India in 1834, his funeral was attended by tens of thousands of Indian Christians. Carey and his associates alone baptized more than 1,500 new converts and thousands more attended classes and worship services. By the year of his death, 50 missionaries were serving 18 missionary stations throughout India. Fourteen missionary societies were established in England alone, as well as several others in America and Europe that owed their existence to the example of William Carey. Carey told his nephew, Eustace Carey, If after my death anyone should think it worth his while to write my life, I will give you a criterion by which you must judge of its correctness. If he gives me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond this will be too much. I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. And to this I owe everything. Yes, William Carey was a plotter. But this brilliant, resourceful, 
and persistent man was an extraordinary plotter for the purposes of God, and by his fruit he is known. William Carey did as he preached. He expected great things. He attempted great things. And as a result, great things happened. The story of William Carey and many others through church history just like him is evidence of God. That while we sometimes wonder whether anything we do for God really matters, the long-lasting effects of kingdom-focused work will be eternally significant. In the text we're going to look at this morning, Solomon is addressing the fact that we often feel as though we might be laboring in vain. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we are frequently tempted to ask, does it really matter? I've prayed for my neighbor's salvation a hundred times, and he's still called to the gospel. I've, have, I've helped the poor as often as I can, but it doesn't really do anything to bring transformation into their life. I've shared the gospel with my coworkers numerous times, but they continue to laugh and mock. Is it even worth it? Certainly for Carrie. I've been in India for six years. My son has died. My wife is very sick. What am I doing? You ever feel that way? The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, even when we do not know how God will use our grace-driven efforts to advance His kingdom, we should continue to pray and serve and hope, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the perspective of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 11. Live a risky life for the sake of the gospel. Don't be hindered by uncertainties in life. Caution is not the way of wisdom, but courage in Christ. Expect great things. Attempt great things. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now Solomon's not encouraging us to eat soggy pumpernickel or sourdough here. This is wisdom pertaining to industry and commercial enterprise. In this context, he's writing specifically about international overseas trade. Now Solomon's using an agricultural trade reference here. The meaning of verse 1 is send your grain, send your resources across the ocean internationally. Engage in foreign commerce and wait for the ships to return with the fine goods from foreign lands. So when Solomon writes, you will find it after many days, he's encouraging the businessman to realize that the reward of his work, the reward of his trade will eventually come after taking a business risk. After taking an economic risk to send your product out to sea to be delivered, you will eventually receive what comes back in return, showing that it was indeed a wise investment. So, as with all biblical wisdom and commands, we have to consider the alternative. 
The alternative to this is if you do not engage in such investments, you will gain nothing. He writes, give a portion to seven or even to eight. In other words, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Diversify your investments rather than narrowly focusing all of your efforts in one area. Why? For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. War, pestilence, famine, financial collapse. Wisdom dictates investing widely. So if one investment does poor, hopefully others will come to cover the loss. Now, this is great financial advice from the richest of all men. Remember, Solomon sees two great dangers we've seen throughout Ecclesiastes connected with wealth and money. One is being so consumed with the accumulation of wealth through overworking and overindulging only to find in the end it truly is vanity. The other is the danger of falling into poverty and the suffering that comes as a result through laziness or misfortune. So Solomon's counsel is that of a safe and sound approach to financial security. But let's remember, Solomon's interest is not entirely financial. There are some sound spiritual principles to be drawn from Solomon's wisdom about international trade and investment diversification. Solomon's wisdom here is an invitation to handle our spiritual business in the very same way. What does that require? Well, it requires a tremendous amount of faith. In Solomon's day, ships on commercial voyages might have been long delayed before there was any hope of any kind of profitable return. Often a businessman would put his goods on a ship having no idea when payment would return. Solomon had a fleet of ships that went out. 1 Kings 10.22 tells us it contained gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. It sailed once every three years. So it took about three years of sending out the goods and returning payment. So life, in Solomon's estimation, estimation, is much like putting our goods out to sea and waiting for them to return. And taken with all that we have seen that Solomon has written previously, he is calling us to understand that all that happens, all of the circumstances that surround us come from the hand of God. And we should enjoy this life despite the trials, despite all of the perplexities. So Solomon is commanding here. This is a command. This is an imperative to cast. But he says this fully knowing that this includes within it an element of trust. There's a big risk as we cast our goods to the sea. And so the spiritual principle here is that we take a risk. We put it out there with an eye on what could come of it. It will be a reward that requires great patience. So in the greater context of Ecclesiastes, we can conclude that Solomon's concern is that we would invest all that we have in a life of faith. 
God calls his people to be venture capitalists for the sake of his kingdom. Solomon's wisdom is not primarily about finances. It's about having faith, about taking a risk in seven or eight things to spread the gospel and then waiting for God's ship to come sailing in. So I want to talk about that for a moment. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 25, Jesus said, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Temporary risk in this life is both necessary and possible because eternal risk was eliminated by Christ. In other words, in this life, we can take radical risk for the sake of the kingdom because the worst thing that can happen in this life is death. And death brings life for the Christian because of what Christ accomplished on our behalf. Taking upon himself the wrath of God that was rightfully ours to bear and raising from the dead, guaranteeing our resurrection from the dead. So because of Jesus, we can embrace the difficult paradoxes of the Bible. We can be tender and tough. We can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We can be in the world, but not of the world. We can be suffering and joy-filled. So the gospel is most triumphant when the people of God take great risks with vigor Casting aside securities and seductions and comforts and pleasures in this world. Because really, in the end, safety doesn't actually exist. Safety is a mirage. And yet we cling to it so tightly as though we will never taste difficulty or death. Solomon's reminded us time and time again, you will die. So profitable, God-honoring risk will look different for each person, dependent on your place in life, your spiritual gifts, whatever else God has given to you. But I think the principle applies to all of us that we should all be involved in some level of risky gospel living. What could that look like for you? How could you cast your bread upon the waters? Let me give you a few examples of what that might look like. Perhaps for you, it's rejecting frivolous pursuits of American dreamlike retirement to commit the latter part of your life to the purpose of global frontier missions, knowing that we have a satisfaction and a joy in the everlasting inheritance of God in only a few short years, thus making a zealous in heart to pursue the kingdom, not the accumulation of earthly comforts. Perhaps it might be adopting one of the 150 million orphans in this world to provide a more stable and lasting hope for this life and the life to come. Knowing that you are showing the tangible results of our vertical adoption in Christ. Perhaps for you it would be a risky venture to approach someone who you haven't spoken to in years because of conflict. Maybe someone in your family. Maybe a neighbor, maybe someone in this church. 
Perhaps it could be cashing out a financial investment you have to meet the needs of a brother or a sister in Christ, helping them to get their feet on the ground or educate their children. Perhaps the Lord has continuously impressed upon you a desire for a specific ministry venture that you've always been reluctant to begin. Now, these are only a few examples of what gospel-driven, kingdom-focused risk might look like for us. And depending on who you are, they may all seem a bit risky on different levels. But these are the kinds of things that the gospel calls us to in this life. Not to be comfortable, not to be frivolous. We are called to use the means we have and to put it all in the line for the kingdom of God, leaving the successes of our labor up to the will and the pleasure of God. It may take years for the ship to return, but we can rest assured that God will do what is right to him. And I promise you the results are far greater than anything we might imagine. Now, we as humans are kept from godly, gospel-driven, kingdom-advancing risk because of fear and because of uncertainty. So as a church, as a local church, we can walk in gospel-driven risk knowing that some of the things that we attempt may fail. So... We may start a ministry as a church and realize after a while, it's just not working. It's not accomplishing what it was first intended for. But gospel-centered risk, as opposed to self-driven, willpower-driven risk, frees us up to fail and in the end, be perfectly okay with it. How so? Because I can know that the successes of God's kingdom are not ultimately dependent upon whether or not we succeed at specific efforts. Let me jab us all where it hurts a little bit. I love Ephesus Church very, very much. I love who we are. I love what we do. I absolutely love the truth we proclaim and teach and seek to advance to all nations. But if something were to happen tomorrow and Ephesus Church ceases to exist here in Rinkin, Georgia, Christ has not failed. He will continue to build His church. He will continue to reign and to rule and His kingdom will still be advanced. And so you see, we can take risk knowing that ultimately the results are up to the Lord's own sovereign desire. And whatever the outcome is, he will be glorified whether we understand it now or not. So the big application for us is, are we taking risk for kingdom purposes as venture capitalists for God? If we're not, why not? How can we? What are your ideas? I think many Christians are so risk reluctant that we wait and wait and wait until we feel like conditions are perfect before moving into any kind of gospel-centered risk. Sometimes we wait forever and nothing is ever accomplished. Imagine if William Carey decided that India was too risky and never moved at all. 
That would be tragic. It would be tragic for William Carey to live a life of ease and comfort, free of any risk in England. I thank God that he pushes and that others pursue great risk for the kingdom. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. If we fail to live up to the commands of verses 1 and 2, if we fail to take gospel-centered risks, if we fail to invest in multiple gospel enterprises as a local church, if we fail to invest wisely and give generously, we will never do any productive spiritual work that can bring about a kingdom harvest. Solomon displays this reality with the story of a farmer. Picture a farmer standing out in the middle of his field. He's looking up at the sky. He says the clouds are heavy with rain. Well, this is part of the natural cycle. A nearby tree has fallen over, possibly the result of a storm. Now Solomon begs the question here, how can the farmer change the weather pattern or stop a tree from falling? These are natural and seemingly random events. So Solomon is asking, why are these circumstances keeping the farmer from doing what he needs to do? Why is he not pushing forward with the work that is his to do? The only thing the farmer is able to do is to sow his seed and harvest his crops. But here he is, standing there, looking at the sky, trying to read the clouds, trying to figure it out, reading the farmer's almanac. When will it be safe to sow my seeds? Well, the answer isn't never. But he keeps watching and waiting. But he never sows, and therefore he never reaps. Why? Because he's waiting for better, more perfect conditions. Is this how you respond when things seem out of your control? Do you sit and stare? Are you crippled? Are you fruitless? Do you procrastinate and put it off because it seems so difficult? Because after all, maybe the weather will be better tomorrow. That's what I say when I have to mow my yard. (laughs) I've seen many fruitless ministry endeavors that start as good ideas and never actually get off the ground because they get locked up in meetings and committees and planning sessions. Planning for something is safe and risk-free. But if it never goes beyond planning, it keeps us from actually ever doing anything. And if that's how we operate, we will never accomplish anything of any significance. At planting time, we realize it might never rain. Our crops may never break through the ground. We may see some fruit, but then when we go to harvest it, we may see the crop completely destroyed 
before we ever get it into the barn. But Solomon is questioning us. How do you know? You don't. You don't know. Remember chapter 9 and verse 11? Solomon wrote, Time and chance happen to us all. We cannot be certain of any outcomes. Those are in the hand of God. But one thing we can be certain of, we will never reap if we never sow. If you're playing basketball, you will never put a point on the board if you never shoot the ball. You might miss it completely, but it's better than not shooting at all. So rather than watching the clouds and seeking to determine where the wind will blow, imagining all the difficulties ahead and waiting for better circumstances, we must instead seek to do what we can with whatever God has given us in this life. Why haven't you sought to move forward in the ministry ideas that you've had? Why have you held back in creatively building relationships with your neighbors? What keeps you from engaging in grace-driven, gospel-centered efforts to advance the kingdom of God? Because Christ has purchased our eternal reward, risk isn't really all that risky, is it? Because of Christ, we are freed up to get involved in ministry. We are freed up to show mercy to someone in need. We are freed up to start a friendship with a neighbor and pray that God would use us to lead them to Christ. Now, this stepping out in faith is not faith that you will ever necessarily succeed. In fact, it may very well be that we fail miserably. But stepping out in faith to take a gospel risk is having faith that God will take whatever you offer and use it in some way for His glory. It may take years before that ship comes back with payment, but God will reward our faithfulness in some way. Ultimately, we know at least He will bring Himself glory. And perhaps more often than our cynical hearts realize, he will also use us to see and experience and enjoy some of the harvest. Some of you have enjoyed this experience. Perhaps someone you've prayed for for years finally believes the gospel. Perhaps a, a minor a minor effort of invested time and money and prayer finally came to something wonderful. It was healthy fruit that you finally got to see. God is gracious to give us those experiences, to encourage zeal within us, to push on in risky kingdom endeavors. And so when it comes to kingdom work, we should always be venture capitalists willing to take tremendous risks for the glory of God. Look at verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. 
So Solomon gives us the command to cast. He gives us a command to give in verses 1 and 2. He gives a warning against idleness like the farmer who watches the weather but does no farming in verses 3 and 4. Now in verse 5, he uses an analogy to remind us how little knowledge we actually have compared to God. Solomon is talking about the human spirit and the way it gives life to a human body. It is, Solomon points out, a mysterious wonder. It is an amazing development. A new person growing inside of another person. And notice, as a side, Solomon is clearly pointing out that a child in its mother's womb has a spirit and is indeed a person, not a blob of unformed tissue. So Solomon is begging the rhetorical question, who can possibly explain the mystery of how the immortal life of a soul inhabits the flesh and bones of a human body in the womb? It is true, as David proclaimed, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. This is Solomon's example as he points to the reality that mankind cannot fathom the mysteries of creation and the divine providence of God. We could very well read this verse as, Just as you do not know how the breath of life enters the fetus in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the work of God who does all. So in context, Solomon points us to the reality that since we cannot know all that will go well, we cannot demand assurance of success before we begin any kind of enterprise. Just as in pregnancy, the only hope of all turning out well is in the sovereign handiwork of God. So too is any business enterprise or ministry endeavor our complete trust must be cast upon the Lord. We are reminded of the words of Job in this. Truly God does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. This whole world is full of the wonder of God. Consider your own life. We will all have questions that may never be answered until we stand before God and ask Him in heaven. Why were certain tragedies a part of our life? Why were there certain prayers that seemed to go unanswered? What was the purpose of certain events in our lives? There are other mysteries as well. Mysteries maybe we rejoice in. What made Jesus, the perfect Son of God, willing to die for me and for you on the cross, taking upon Himself the full wrath of the Father? Why did God choose us, of all the people in the world, to be His own people? Why me and not my neighbor? I know my own heart. Why? How did the Holy Spirit actually come into my life and illumine the scriptures that I might see and believe? These are questions I have. We may have questions about the ministry of God's church. 
Why does the gospel seem to spread in certain places and among certain peoples and not others? What is God's plan for entire nations of people that are currently lost in sin? The bottom line is we must come to the same conclusion as Solomon. We do not know the work of God who makes everything. And oh, how much more I learn this to be true. The older I get and the more he lets me see. Life to me seems to be a series of massive mountain climbing adventures. We get to the very top of one peak only to look out and see an endless range of other mountains we never even knew existed. What a call to humility. What a call to obedience. What a call for us to trust in the sovereign, risen King. There is so much more that we will never know because God is so great and majestic. Solomon gives us a concluding command in verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know what will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Here is where many people will stub their toe against God's sovereignty. If God is so sovereign... Why should I even pray? Why should I evangelize? Why should I ever do missions? Well, Solomon is teaching exactly the opposite approach. Solomon is pushing us to conclude that God is sovereign, and since we will never know the outcome, that we must press on. And he says, more pointedly, you will never reap what you never sow. So work hard for the kingdom of God because God is a God of means. Live boldly. Live creatively. Try something new for the sake of the gospel. Be a venture capitalist for the kingdom of God. Be a spiritual entrepreneur. In the end, it may all fail. And your next endeavor may fail. But do everything you can to serve Christ in a world that is in desperate need of the gospel. Sow gospel seeds in the world around you. Pick the weeds when you see them. Add water, add food, and trust in the end that the Lord will do whatever He sees fit. And whatever He sees fit is right and good. If you embark on a ministry effort that lasts for 10 years and then it's over, we ought not dwell on why it didn't work out. Instead, thank God for the 10 years of gospel seeds that were sown. From time to time, we may wonder whether or not gospel ministry ever accomplishes anything at all. I'll confess to you, this is a constant struggle In my heart, and I think probably most pastors. Sometimes doubting that God is actually using the means he's saying that he will because there are times we feel like we see so little fruit. But that's just called pride. 
Because we want to be the ones who get the glory. The Bible does not encourage us to look in this way. The Bible encourages us to look faithfully, to trust, knowing that God gives us many wonderful promises about the work of the Holy Spirit and what He will do with the Word of God. Consider a very familiar passage, Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the harvest, which will come at the proper time. This was true in his own life and ministry. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus was talking about his own death on the cross and burial in the ground, as well as the resurrection that followed. It was not just words that Jesus sowed, but his very life itself. When he offered his blood sacrifice on the cross for our sins. The gospel harvest of his saving work is forgiveness and eternal life for everyone who believes in him. And listen, Jesus is not offering grace in portions to seven or to eight. Jesus is offering grace to millions upon millions from every language, tribe, people, and nation. Sinners who turn to Him in faith and repentance. And so Jesus sends us out to do a little sowing of our own. He is the Lord of the harvest. We do not always know how God will use us and what He will do when we sow. But if we keep sowing, the day might come when God will reap a harvest of salvation in our midst. It might take six years in the most difficult of circumstances like William Carey. But God will save His people from His very own wrath. So the call on our lives is simply this. Expect great things. Attempt great things. God will do the rest because it is for His glory alone. So cast your bread on the waters. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. In the morning sow your seed and at evening withhold not your hand. And what God will do, you never know. But you will never reap if you never sow. Let's be sowers of gospel seeds for the glory of God. That His people will come in and that we will rejoice with them before the throne of Christ forever and ever together. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word and for the call on all of our lives as believers. For those of us who are your people, that you call us to live sacrificial, risky lives for the sake of the gospel. I pray, God, that for each of us, you help us to think on this very truth, this very call on each of us today. As we spend time on the Lord's Day contemplating your word and discussing the implications of your word in our lives, I pray, God, that you would help us to understand what it is for us as individuals and families and as a local church to be venture capitalists for the kingdom of Christ. Help us to be creative. Help us to be courageous and bold. Help us to be faithful in seeking to see the gospel advance to the nations. Lord, we desire to see you glorified. We desire to see you do a great work in our midst. And as we sing to bring the captives home, Lord, we long to see the churches full. And we pray that you would do that work through us because you are rescuing your people from your wrath. Give us risky, gospel-spreading hearts. Give us greater zeal. And I pray, Lord, that because we're weak, because we're frail, because we are so prone to wander, I pray that you motivate our zeal by doing these works in our midst that we would see your handiwork. Help us, Lord, to walk by faith, to understand that when we attempt great things, that we may very well fail by our standards. But you do all things well, and you do them to bring yourself great glory. Let that be our drive. Let that be our purpose. Let that be our motivation. Your glory alone. Thank you, O Lord, for your word. Thank you for your commands. And thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps us to see and understand and believe your word. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.